Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the Sunday school class and for my brothers and sisters at Lakeside. Lord, you've provided for us an oasis in a dark world. Lord, so much of our lives we've we've at least not faced the overt hostility to what we believe, but it's been changing for the last couple of decades and it's gone from bad to worse and Lord we we're not blind we see what's happening in the world and you're sovereign you can you can reform hearts you can bring revival to the souls of our people and our country but absent that Lord we see already the hostility to a biblical worldview and we know that hostility will increase but we thank you that you've given us a place like Lakeside where we can fellowship together where we can find encouragement and comfort for one another and where we can study your word without fear of being condemned or mocked or attacked amongst the brethren. So Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. We pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that don't have the opportunity, some who are still limited by COVID from meeting, some simply who can't meet because their countries don't allow it. We just pray for the church universal and that you would perfect each individual member of your church so that you would be glorified. And Lord, as we come to the end of 1 Peter today, Lord, we've been studying for years a book that that deals with believers suffering hardship. Such a blueprint for us, Lord, of the, the hostility we may face and how to respond and be holy as you are holy even in the midst of that. So I pray as we conclude this study today that you would give me wisdom to accurately portray what's here. I pray that you would help us to remember the lessons we've learned over many years and that you would apply them to our hearts, not so that we would know more about the book we call First Peter, but so that we would know more about you and that we would live and be holy as you are holy. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to the end of First Peter, as I mentioned, the last five verses, which if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, it's First Peter chapter 5, we're at verse 10. If you've been here from start to finish, know that certain themes have been reiterated over and over. I think it's interesting that I originally picked First Peter because I saw what was coming in the world, and really the Lord, for his own purposes, slowed things down a little bit in the last four years. But as we've seen from a flurry of executive orders in the first couple of weeks of a new administration, what was perhaps slowed down is speeding up. But First Peter was written to believers who were suffering. They were treated poorly. They endured injustice. And yet Peter was writing to remind them of the paramount duty of every believer, regardless of what's going on, and it's our paramount duty. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, I've read this so many times that we almost should all have it memorized. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Everything in 1 Peter is pushing towards that goal. Every admonition, every encouragement... And Peter understood how necessary it was to encourage these believers because their lives were difficult. And this morning, we are ultimately, we're not deviating from that goal, but as he finishes up the letter, 
he's wrapping up the letter in a way that sort of is a exclamation point in one sense, but in another sense, he's sort of landing the plane, as it were. Building off the warning and the exhortation that we spent a few weeks going over, which was that we have an adversary, the devil, who's seeking to devour us. Again, he's bringing in the plane to land and end all of this. And again, the difficulties facing these believers are in view. And as we think through what we perceive to be coming our way, and Pastor Steve identified several of those things that that are likely going to happen in his sermon this morning, but we have to keep in mind that we're not the first people to endure this. In fact, we're some of the last people to endure it. As he said, God's just been merciful to us. We've been given what we don't deserve, not only by the Lord in our salvation, but in being left alone by a fallen world. Verses 8 and 9, again, as we covered it over several weeks, Peter was dealing with the suffering caused by Satan and satanic activity. And he was encouraging us to be ready for the hardships coming. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Verse 9, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are be accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And so even as he's warning us, pay attention, don't fall asleep, don't miss what's happening, don't, don't ignore the fact that you're in a battle. He's also encouraging us that we're on the winning side. We stand firm in the faith, we can endure. And what his original hearers were enduring, he was reminding them, look, this is happening around the world, and I remind us of that, particularly when we get justifiably frustrated with what we see happening to our country. We've got to remember our brothers and sisters around the world and praise the Lord that we still have it better than they do. Even when things are going bad, we still got it better than many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 14, and then I'll give the outline. But these are Peter's final words to the churches to whom he was writing. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brothers, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So I've broken this up into a Simple outline, final words to the beleaguered faithful. It's also the title. Final words to the beleaguered faithful. And the first is this. God will make believers whole for any losses they suffer. God will make believers whole for any losses they suffered. And I see this in verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Again, these words follow immediately after 
Peter was talking about Satan and his attacks and his desire to destroy Christians. And it certainly applies to satanic warfare, but it goes beyond that. It really culminates all of the trials that these believers suffered, which if we understand things correctly, most all of the trials caused by a fallen world and evil men are motivated by Satan, the ruler of this age. But as he began this book, he talked about the trials. Verse 6, And this you greatly rejoice, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And you think back through all the things we've covered in the book of the mistreatment of slave by their masters, the need to submit to the government even when the government is wrong, the need to live with a spouse correctly even if the spouse is wrong, on and on, the slander, the mistreatment, the false accusations. It's all summed up in that phrase in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while. Peter's really calling attention to the fact that this is just for a moment. These are temporary sufferings. They're real. For some people, they may suffer their entire life. He's not putting a time stamp and saying, okay, it's going to end at this point. But the point is, everything on this earth, our entire lives are just a moment. It's just a little while. The sufferings are not going to endure forever. I think if any, any of us that have been through years-long trial, it feels like it's going to be forever. I can remember more than once in my life, and it, not even horrific trials, but I couldn't see where it would ever end, and God not once sent me an email or a text telling me it was going to end. Just didn't know. But what we do know is this isn't eternal. If the government turns against us, if our fellow countrymen turns against us and they put all of their energies into hating us and persecuting us and mistreating us, it's just for a little while. First of all, we're all mostly old, so we're not going to be here that long anyway. But even for the younger of us, if it's 30 years, if it's 40 years, if it's 100 years, still just a moment. And what I love about what Peter is saying is there's light at the end of the tunnel. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's so much wrapped up in this simplicity but it's just a reminder that the light at the end of the tunnel is God himself. He's the God of all grace. And, and you think about enduring hardships and difficulties and trials and satanic attacks and just the evilness of the world in a fallen world. He's reminding us of the character of God, the God of all grace. Everything we need, he provides especially to his hurting children. I always go back to a verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, in my own mind, in my daily life, thinking about what God 
does when he sees us in our weakness and our hurting when we're struggling. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God loves showering us with what we don't deserve. He's the God of all grace. Every grace we receive from Him is not because we earned it. It's just because He loves us. It's a promise that He will provide everything we lack. Even if we feel, and the hurting is real, even if we feel beleaguered and suffering, He's still there for us. And Peter, for the umpteenth time, reminds us that this God of all grace is the one who called us. We didn't go find Him. He found us. Who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. God saw sinners like us in this fallen world and He called to us. He knew we needed the grace that He alone could provide to overcome our sin. And He called us forth and gave us His grace. In Christ. Peter began the letter talking about this calling. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God called us. God initiated us. God called us to be born again. God caused us to be born again. And Peter, perhaps mindful that his original recipients were living in dark times. Can you imagine if you were one of those slaves who had an unreasonable master whose daily existence made you suffer? There had to be almost a cloud of darkness hanging over you. And Peter's reminding them it's not just that God called you, but He called you to His eternal glory. One day we'll be eternally glorified with Christ. It's a recurrent theme. God's glory, our glorification, the glorification of Jesus. We see it over and over in this book. It was actually in my studies that reading other people reminded me of it because it gets eclipsed a little bit. Some of the expressions in verse 7 of chapter 1. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.11, again talking about Christ and glories. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Christ and the glories to follow. Still in chapter 1, verse 20, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter four eleven. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
in ways that I can't comprehend, one day we share in that glory. Despite us being sinners, we will be partakers of the glory of Christ forever. Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, this same truth. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. I cannot, in my finite humanness, comprehend what that was like. I can picture in the Bible when, when the glory of God came, people fell down. People immediately knew they were sinful. People thought they would die. You get the picture of Isaiah standing in the temple, woe is me with unclean lips. He got a glimpse. I got to believe the transfiguration was something else. To see Jesus glowing. This man you walked with, you see his glory that was so profound. I can't fully get my mind about how we get to share that. I believe it with all my heart. I look forward to it. I can't picture it. Why? Because I still look in the mirror and see me. I can't fully see Christ. But Peter is saying, the light at the end of the tunnel is greater than anything we could comprehend because that light is the glory of God Himself and He called us so that we would experience it with Him. Eternally. That's the contrast. And in chapter 1, he talks about for a little while the sufferings. Here, he talks about for a little while. He's contrasting with however long we have on this earth. We have eternity with the glory of God surrounding us. Here's his ultimate picture. And it's just a reminder. Yes, is life hard? Yes, it is. Are we going to endure these hardships? Yes, we do. Do we have to stand firm even when we're attacked? Yes. All those exhortations and commands are still there. We still have to be holy as God is holy. But the hope is that the struggles and suffering and failures and hurts of this fallen world are just a moment. And we'll be with the Lord forever. That's why we were called out of darkness into light. One day we'll experience light that we can't imagine. And on that day, if you suffered here on earth, God's going to make you whole beyond what you can comprehend. Look back again at verse 10. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's an intimacy here that is precious that again is hard to picture to some extent. Peter is telling us that God cares about each one of us such that He will fix whatever was hurt. He'll make complete whatever was broken. There's these four descriptions. If you have different versions, the words are different. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. And they do have unique meanings. If you study perfect, deals with, again, bringing to wholeness. Restoring what has been lost. Confirm has to do with stabilizing. Something has lost support, it's wobbling. Okay, we'll just hold on, we'll stabilize you. 
Strengthen is just that. You're weak, you're being strengthened, you're being built up. Establish you. It has to do with placing us on a firm foundation. But it's not the individual words, it's the comprehensive picture that Peter is leaving his hearers with. Because he understands, I believe, the things he's telling them to do are not easy. And while there's light at the end of the tunnel, it's still a tunnel. And it's still a journey. And for some, it may be a ways off. But he's letting them know, look, whatever hurt you have here, whatever you suffer here, God is waiting and he himself not as angels, not emissaries, not other believers. He himself will be there to take care of us. It's this contrast. The life on earth, it beats us down. Just the emotions of the last year have taken a toll. They've taken a toll on me at least. Not only the illness and COVID and all of the chaotic changes of the world... But then you think about your own individual lives with your own struggles and with your own family issues. And then you add to it the political picture and the world picture and the economic picture. And then you glance and you see what's coming, what Pastor C was talking about. We read it, that believers suffered it in Scripture, but it's coming for us. False accusations, accused of hate when all you're doing is trying to preach love. On and on it goes. Add to that the adversary, the devil, who we can't even see, who knows us better than we know ourselves, and he's laying landmines for us at every step. Here's the point of all that. Life is hard. If anybody ever says life isn't hard, they just haven't lived very long. Particularly for a believer. But the promise of God is that the end is coming and it'll be okay. And for eternity, it'll all be taken care of. However imperfectly we bump and stumble to finish this race at the finish line, our Heavenly Father's there to pick us up and dust us off and to make us whole and to be with Him forever. Such that what Peter, I believe, is exhorting them is what the Apostle Paul said, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think that's what Peter's saying. And Paul, likewise, reminding the church at Philippi, a reminder that, that I think would fit with what Peter is saying in the context of everything and what's a word for us particularly as we're troubled by what's happening to the country that we love. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So could we keep pressing forward? Peter making it clear it's worth it. And if you suffer, if you lose something on the way, it'll be made whole. God will take care of it himself. So the first word of the final words to the beleaguered faithful, God will make believers whole for any losses they suffer. The second is this, God is still on his throne even in times of hardship. 
God is still on His throne even in times of hardship. The next verse is one of those that can be a throwaway verse because it's clearly, it's almost as though it's a prayer. But it says, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Peter is really reminding us and reminding his original hearers of a simple truth that has profound implications for us as we keep moving forward. To Him be dominion. He's not giving God something. He's acknowledging that God already has something. Dominion is the power. The complete dominance and control of this universe. Now that's truth taught throughout Scripture. For example, and it's just one place I could have pulled others. Psalm 145 verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations Another way of saying forever and ever. As powerful as Satan is, he doesn't have dominion over believers. He just doesn't. As powerful as sin is, it doesn't have dominion over us. Even though we see the effects of curse throughout all humanity, and even though Satan in one sense is the God of this age, he doesn't have dominion even over this fallen world. God is still on his throne. And the one who is the God of all grace, who called us to be partakers of eternal glory in Christ, has the power over everything. And it's a reminder to these believers who feel anything but powerful that the one who called them still is in charge. God's power is there for all believers. It never diminishes. It never ends. It cannot be taken away. I think about our lives, and again, we're different ages, and and there's some young people in the room right now, and there's some older people, but what I'm experiencing right now, I'm sure all of you either are experiencing or have experienced it. Every year, I feel weaker. I'm thankful. I, I mean, well, I'm first of all thankful that I'm alive, and I'm thankful that I can still do stuff. I get out, and I can, I still can run. The difference is I feel all those things. And I wind down. And I got aches and pains. It's just ridiculous. It's like they never stop. What's going on here? My neck hurts. My back hurts. My calf hurts. And I talk to my wife and she's hurting everywhere as well. And my mom's living with us. She's got 30 years on me. She's hurting. And... I only say that as the contrast of what God is. God has never diminished. We have to be careful because while we're created in His image, we aren't God. And all of the things of the world that wear us down and the effects of the curse that beat us down, they don't beat Him down. He is not diminished. And that's the hope for us. Because... The reality is, as life gets harder for us, 
we're older and it's harder for us to deal with. But to Him be dominion forever and ever. It's okay because the one who called us has the power and it's not going away. Now there's a third final word to the beleaguer faithful. One, God will make believers whole for any losses they suffer. Second, God is still on his throne even in times of hardship. Third, God's word provides the strength to endure. God's word provides the strength to endure. Now Peter here is basically transitioning into basically the ending of the letter, the type of thing that happens. It's similar to if you read Paul's letters. But the first part of that has some lessons. Verse 12 says this, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And I originally, there's actually a lot of things here I could talk about, and there's some things I thought I would go further into, which is why this was originally going to be two messages, but I realized a lot of this I've taught already. It's reiterated other places of First Peter, so I can not go into as much detail But I do want to point out a few things. First, Peter's commending a faithful partner in ministry. Now, this doesn't attach to my point, but the way he does things, he mentions a person, then he mentions a point, then he mentions some more people. But he says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother. Now, I wouldn't have, this wouldn't have jumped out at me, studying it. Silvanus is just another name for the person referred to repeatedly in Scripture as Silas. In fact, there's a Silas in the book of Acts that ministered with Paul. It's the same person. Just different forms of a Greek name, and that's the nature of things. But it's the same person. And our point is going to be tied up in the words I have written to you briefly. But first, just recognize what Peter is doing. This, This man who was helping him was a faithful man and a powerful man, and it's in all likelihood he was the one that was going to be walking this letter into the churches. If you remember back at the beginning of it, this was written to a variety of churches. This wasn't like written to the church in Rome or a specific church here. It was written to a variety of churches, which meant it would probably have to be taken from place to place. And the experts, through a variety of things, think that Silas, Silvanus, was the one Peter was entrusting to do that. And so there's a sense in which I come through the door into a church, and maybe you know me, maybe not, but I've got the endorsement of of Peter with me. Because I'm bringing you the letter, and Peter's saying, this guy, that he's faithful. And it's interesting because he was a powerful man in his own right by reputation and by ministry. It's interesting because in Acts chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, after the Jerusalem Council, a very important thing in the early church, Silas was one of the men picked to deliver those words to churches. Acts chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. 
and they sent this letter by them. So he was recognized by the pillars of the church as a faithful man. And initially, he chose to minister, and Paul chose him to minister with him. So, for example, in Acts chapter 15, verse 40, But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he became a faithful messenger with Paul. Acts chapter 16, it talks about the fact that they were delivering the decrees which they had received. In other words, they were taking the message everywhere it was supposed to go. And the churches were being strengthened. In fact, he wound up enduring persecution with Paul. Acts chapter 16, verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. This is somebody that had a track record of faithfulness. He saw miracles. He and Paul were miraculously freed when they were ultimately put in prison. They were miraculously freed. So at some point in all of this, things came full circle perhaps. But he came in contact with Peter and was ministering with him. And Peter says something else and, and different scholars have different agreements on what Peter was saying but I think that I believe the consensus is this. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. And he's not just saying that Silvanus had stood the test of time, but he also was suggesting, I believe, that Silvanus might have been the one that actually was putting the pen to the paper. There's a fancy word that I won't try and pronounced that you see in different theology commentaries and stuff but the bottom line is he was probably his secretary at that point writing down what Peter was telling him the Holy Spirit was inspiring Peter but it seems that perhaps what was happening was Peter used Sylvanus to actually write it down the Apostle Paul did that for example the book of Romans you see it Romans 16 verse 22 I Tertius who write this letter greet you in the Lord doesn't mean that Peter didn't write the letter. didn't mean that Paul didn't write a letter. It just means that sometimes they would use someone else to help write things down. And I think Peter's just telling us that Silas helped him write down the words. And then we get to our point, which is saying something about what was written. And he mentions that he wrote briefly. I mean, this is five chapters. I think his point is I have a lot more I could say. Every point I gave you, I could elaborate. But I just gave you a brief summary. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter is saying, I believe with great passion, that this is Scripture. That the words that he's been giving, that the gospel that has been proclaimed, that everything he's saying is part of the true grace of God, meaning it's part of the Word of God. And I think he's telling them that these are the Word of God 
given to sinners in difficult times, stand firm in it. Remember, at this time, there wasn't the entirety of the Bible written. But Peter was validating that this is Scripture. This is truth. Stand firm in the truth is what Peter is telling them. Now again, he said things like this in the letter, but as he's coming to the end, even in his closing remarks, he's reminding them of the centrality of the Word of God. It's not just a call to be tough, to suck it up. It's a call to draw strength from the fountain of wisdom that is in God's Word. And that's still our duty. Stand firm in the Word of God. One of the things I think that we'll find fascinating, if in fact what we think is occurring is going to occur, something that I have seen and many others have seen for years, the increasing hostility of the government to our belief system And I shared this years ago with my daughters when I was talking to them about the Supreme Court case that legalized gay marriage. What's going to be so frustrating for us is every time the government takes steps that hurt the church, there'll be so-called Christian leaders standing beside the government officials saying this is a good thing to do. It happens already. These politicians claim to be Christians. They're doing things absolutely against the Word of God and yet they stand up there with pastors flanking behind them saying, well, of course, this is good. None of those people are standing firm in the Word of God. If they were, their views wouldn't be driven by the winds of public opinion. More than ever, that's what's critical for the church is that we're planted firmly regardless of the consequences. And more and more, I'm convinced that we need to spend less time looking at what's going out there and we need to dive deeper into God's Word because we don't have to go looking for out there. It's going to come find us. And when it finds us, we need to be grounded. We need to be standing firm in the truth. I see it in my own heart. I'm so easily exasperated and frustrated and my flesh rears its head and before you know it, I'm not dealing with the truth of God's Word. I'm arguing something completely different. I'm primarily talking about some unbelievers that I witness to that I love dearly that reject Christ. And I have to always remind myself that I have to come back and just stand in the Word of God. The God of all grace has given us some of the grace that we need in the Word of God. Stand firm in it. It's God's Word that provides the strength for us to endure as things go from bad to worse. There's one final word to the beleaguered faithful. And it looks like we will have some time to share prayer requests. I'm I'm glad about that. Final point is this. God's people are in this struggle together. God's people are in this struggle together. Now, this may not jump out, but I always try and take myself back and 
and place myself in the shoes of the people that originally would have received the letter. And perhaps by the time you get to the end of the letter, you're encouraged more, but the people that received it were hurting. Life was tough. They were enduring trials. And Peter closes the letter this way. Verse 13 and 14. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And he points out something here, and it's just a... All scriptures inspired by God. So not even the closing words are a throwaway and the opening words aren't a throwaway. But Peter says some things that we've got to think about for a minute. But he says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Now it's a bit cryptic, but as you study through this, I think most people come to a consensus of what's going on here. Although the reasons why Peter may have said this are different. But I'll just tell you what study shows me from things. Babylon is actually referring to the city of Rome. Now, there's different reasons why people think that. Some people think that just as in the Old Testament, one of the pinnacles of civilization and false religion was Babylon. You picture under Nebuchadnezzar and those things, Babylon was all-powerful. But by this time, Babylon was off the scene. Rome was that seat of power and everything. Other people think that Perhaps because of the persecution that was enduring, Peter was writing from Rome, but he didn't want to advertise the fact so that if the letter got picked up that everybody knew. But that's neither here nor there. Here's what Peter was doing. He's telling them that the church, not an individual, but the church in Rome, they were chosen together, meaning they were called just like you were called, they were born again like you were again. The entire church cares for you. They're sending greetings that probably also would go that they would send prayers. Just a reminder that you're not alone. As they walk into a church somewhere with this letter, those believers may not, they don't have the internet back then, they may not have a full awareness of what's going on all around the world. They'd have some knowledge. But quite often life was such a struggle just to survive that you're mainly focused on your little world. It's just a reminder, other people care about you. They know about you and they care about you. Those kind of things always resonated with me coming from a town that is a nobody town. I get it. Things in the middle of nowhere. But other believers cared for other believers. He adds a second thing. And so does my son, Mark. Now he's not saying that Mark is his literal son. And this is the same John Mark that was in Scripture and actually wrote the Gospel of Mark. But he's basically saying, my son in the faith, my spiritual son, my helper, He's sending his greetings. So you can imagine you've got one Sylvanus who was a strong believer, respected member of the church. He cared enough to personally deliver the letters to you. But then the entire church of Rome, the greatest city at that time in the area that they knew of, was praying for them. 
And even the spiritual son of Peter was sending his greetings. Point was, they weren't alone. It's easier for us to see that we're not alone because there's churches everywhere. And there'll always be believers that can come alongside us and care for us. But don't ever underestimate how much it means to struggling believers to hear that other believers somewhere else care. One of the things that has disappointed me over the last year is I've not been able to go back to West Africa with Mike Schott. We've had a trip planned three times and it's been canceled three times because you can't travel right now. But I know when I go and I face those pastors from Nigeria and Benin and Togo and talk to them, hearing that the church in America sends greetings, their faces light up. Because to know that other believers care gives them strength. When they lost their hog farm, you remember we took up an offering. I can't tell you that the English is a little bit broken, but the word back, they were so encouraged because we cared. That we cared enough to help. That not only did we send people from time to time, but that we cared about their problems because their own country doesn't care about their problems. But believers care for other believers. And it's just a reminder, we're in this with others. And verse 14 just finishes it. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is just a reminder to the believers as you're receiving this and being welcomed, just love one another. Doesn't mean we have to literally kiss people. First missions trip I ever took was to the country of Ukraine. I was with my brother Vladimir, who is now home with the Lord. But in Ukraine, we were mixing with an American missionary couple, and we were just doing ministry. It wasn't so much. But I went with Vladimir on a 14-hour train ride. That's another story, as scared as I've ever been. Across the country of Ukraine, the only person on the train that was American. Um, I stood out like a sore thumb. But we got there, and I'd been warned about this, and we get all the way out to near an area called Donetsk. The actual place would be called Hartsisk, but I can't even pronounce it right because my tongue doesn't do the right things. But I was nervous about something. I knew that the brothers there, they literally greeted each other with a holy kiss. And it wasn't a kiss on the cheek. They literally kissed each other on the mouth. And so as I thought about that, I mustered up my courage, and the first person that leaned for me, I turned my cheek, and they kissed me on the cheek. So um, I couldn't bring myself to do it. We're not being disobedient if we don't kiss each other like this. But they took it literally. They took it literally. We don't have to. But Pastor Steve was talking about this. We greet one another. We fist pump. We shake hands. For some of us, we hug. Whatever it takes. It's just a reminder that not only are the other churches out there, but we're there for each other. And then he leaves them with a blessing, which is really a prayer. Peace be to you all. So that's it. After many years, we finished another book. My prayer, though, is that just as it is for you, it is for me, that we didn't just hear this and know more about First Peter, but that we live more truth. That the words that perhaps might resonate in our hearts would cause us to live differently. And that because of our study, we 
would be holy as God is holy. So let me encourage you. I would encourage you. Read and reread this book. Most all the messages are online. You could listen to them online. But read the book. Read it. Reread it. Particularly in these dark times. Because the message is for us. If you do, and if I do, I believe Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers will be true of us. And I'll use this as my closing prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 through verse 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that thousands of years ago you inspired Peter to record these words for believers who were enduring hardship. And we pray, Lord, that we'll take the right lessons from this so that as our world continues to spiral... We wouldn't despair, we wouldn't get distracted, but we would remember that even in the midst of this, our goal is the same, to be holy as you are holy. Pray that you enable us to do that by the power of your Spirit in us, applying your word to us. We thank you that we are the recipients of grace from you, the God of all grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.